Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join in, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about Edward Cantor's book chronicling his wife's battle with ovarian cancer. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. Can you tell us about your wife and, and her diagnosis? Well, Mickey was um, in her early 60s when she was diagnosed. Um, she had retired about five years before that and um, had begun to take courses at Yale and was enrolled in graduate school when she was diagnosed. Um, her symptoms in the beginning were not, uh, there were no typical symptoms, and that's one of the problems with ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, they say you may feel some bloating in your stomach. She had none of that. Um, there were some earlier situations which, had we been more aware, I think would have um, kindled some interest in us in pursuing that may have helped the situation, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. So how did she come to medical attention? Well, she had some pain in her back, but she had had chronic back problems. So um, her doctor at that time, her um, gynecologist, ordered an ultrasound. And the ultrasound was taken um, by an uh, an independent physician at a radiologist in New Haven. Sure. And he um, said that there were there was some oxygenation that was apparent. Um, which meant that there could have been a growth of um, some cellular growth that was being fed by oxygen and said that we should follow it for 90 days. That could have been interpreted as the development of of blood cells, blood vessels. Um, At the end of 90 days, he followed through and said that um, this requires uh, surgery. had we been more alert, had the doctor suggested it, um, a possibility that would have occurred would have been a hysterectomy in the beginning. Hmm. Because obviously my wife's ovaries at the age of, um, in her early 60s at 63, weren't something that she needed. (laughs) Well, right. But it sounds like perhaps on the ultrasound, he didn't really see a tumor, it sounds like. There Is wasn't right? a tumor. There was just increased vac- vasculariza- vascularization. I see. Okay. Um, and so um, eventually, um, uh, sooner there, soon thereafter, um, we were sent to the Yale Cancer Center and were told that Mickey was going to be operated on very quickly. Um, she was operated on by Tom Rutherford, who we didn't have a chance to meet before the surgery. Hmm. Um, her gynecologist up to that time told her that it was nothing that progressed too well. It's something on one ovary. Um, then her uh, statement to us was that if it's something on one ovary, it's obviously encapsulated, 
which meant that it had not spread. And um, well, the, did she indicate that something meant cancer? Is yes, that, you understood that, that, that something was cancer. That's what we assumed. Um, although she told us in the beginning that she didn't think it was anything. Um, when they operated, they found that she had cancer on both ovaries, on the omentum, which is located between the two ovaries, and in the fallopian tubes, and all of that was removed. Hmm. And was that a very shocking thing totally. to learn? Totally. Um, and uh, we were not ready for that diagnosis. Um, Mickey was in the hospital. I decided that I needed to tell her right away what had happened. And uh, she was not prepared for it. I was not prepared for it. I told her about the diagnosis. Um, my reaction was um, shock, anger, disappointment. Um, and I then found out um, within the next two days that she really didn't comprehend what I told her. She was still feeling the effects of the surgery. And that when she next saw her doctor, who was not Dr. Rutherford, it was a doctor covering for him, he told her about the cancer and the spread of the cancer so that when I saw her the next day and she no longer felt the effects of surgery, um, she was um, crying very emotional and very upset. Wow, I mean, it sounds like this whole, I mean, the diagnosis of cancer in communication with patients and their families is, is always a difficult one. It's one of the hardest jobs we have uh, as oncologists, uh, but it certainly sounds like, in retrospect, uh, this whole series of events was not managed uh, in a way that was really optimal for you guys, well, given there was going to be bad news. That was, that was before we got to the cancer center, um, particularly. Um, we dismissed the um, gynecologist at that time. Um, there had been other episodes. You always think back and think, well, what if? What if you had been aware of certain things? Well, there were two other things, that when Mickey reached menopause, she was given hormone replacement drugs, as many women are, consisting of progesterone and Premarin. Mm -hmm. um, she switched, um, uh, and she was on it for quite some time. And the general medical feeling is that you don't stay on it forever, that it presents certain dangers. She was aware of the danger. She chose to stay on it because off of it, she reacted very badly to um, post-menopausal discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, but when she switched gynecologists, there was a mistake, and the gynecologist who eventually told us that, that the initial diagnosis was nothing kept her on Premarin but forgot to put her on progesterone. Mm -hmm. Premarin stimulates cell growth. Um, it thickens the uterine lining. That's the last thing you want. Progesterone counteracts that. Mm -hmm. So there were a period of months in which she was only on Premarin and not on progesterone. Now, we can't say that that caused or accelerated anything, but it still is something that certainly wasn't good for her in her situation. So the early management before anything was diagnosed was certainly something that was questionable. But it sounds like even in the hospital, 
the primary surgeon, uh, again, not to cast aspersions in any directions, uh, was not as available as one might like either in terms of pre-op meeting and post-op debriefing for the two of you together? Well, he would come at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I didn't know that. And uh, Mickey was in a daze. She didn't know who he was because she had never met him. Mm -hmm. And so there were several days in which I was very frustrated because I hadn't had a chance to meet him and talk to him and see who he was. There were other people on staff. There was another oncologist um, who also was a surgeon who was very nice and talked to us during that time and explained things. We were in a we were in a a storm. We were um, taken up in a whirlwind and were carried along by the system. Um, that was very upsetting, particularly for me, who in my life had always been in control of of what I was doing and what was happening. And now we were part of the system, and and there was not a lot of personal contact in the beginning. That was remedied as her as her treatment progressed. Mm-hmm. This was in two thousand three. Yeah, so um, certainly uh, before the advent of our Smilo Hospital, where I, I, I believe, and having come from an, another great institution, uh, Johns Hopkins, from from which I from where I came, uh, you know, I really do believe that the patient and family experience is really a central focus. Um, of the Smilo experience now, uh, we have a, a really wonderful administration, but it's, you know, I feel like a corporate apology, uh, at least regret that uh, that back then you didn't have that kind of experience. Well, really it's very interesting when um, Tom Lynch, who has just left as the director of Smilo, uh, read my book, he said to me, you were too nice to the doctors mm-hmm. in my book. I ah. ended up being very grateful to the doctors, and, and the hospital changed, uh, as you have said. Um, there was a change not just in the cancer treatment, but in the hospital as a whole. Yes. And we were really aware of that after 2003, during her treatment, during the long period of her remission, and during her recurrence. It was a much different experience. So, so here you are. She's crying you're feeling lost. What what happened after that? Well, um, she was uh, told that she would need to have chemotherapy, and um, we were we gradually realized how grave the situation was. We learned that fifty percent of ovarian um, uh, cancer patients at her level, which was level three. Only 50% survive for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, I tended to look at things with a glass half full. Um, Mickey tended to look at things more with a glass half empty. So I was in a position of telling her, well, you're going to be part of the good 50%. And she wasn't so sure about that. Um, about three weeks later, we began chemotherapy. And the chemotherapy consisted of um, six sessions, three weeks apart. Mm-hmm. Um, she tolerated the chemotherapy very well. Um, at the end of each session, she was given uh, Nulasta. It's a growth factor to stimulate her white blood cells. Right. And that was the hardest thing for her to handle. A lot of bony pain, probably. A lot of pain in her bones. 
So we planned things that way. We knew that after um, after the chemotherapy, she was going to be okay for 24 hours. Then we would have the new Lasta, and she would have a lot of pain for about two days. And then that would subside, so we'd get a, a period of about uh, 10 days or two weeks in which she was weak and then gathered her strength, and we could carry on, and then she would have the next treatment. Did you think about discussing with the physicians or any of the physician extenders, uh, advanced practice nurse practitioners or whatever about the new last and whether that could be adjusted or changed to something else, or you just assumed this was the price of admission? We um, tried to ameliorate the pain, and they were giving her things to do that, but uh, they didn't always work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So six cycles of this, so that's over around four months, it sounds like? That's correct. And then what happened? Then what was the situation? Well, it's very interesting because the patient does what she's told to do, and that's to follow the medical instructions. And she was doing very well at the end of 18, uh, 18 weeks. Um, she did not register. There's a marker to show you how what your levels are called the CA-125. Mm -hmm. And about 10 or 15% of people who um, have cancer don't register on that, on that uh, standard. And she did not. So we couldn't tell objectively how she was doing. Um, but she felt good. The physical examinations were all positive, and um, she was told that now we sit and wait. She had, um, and and by that time we had gotten to know her surgical oncologist Tom Rutherford, who turned out to be a wonderful, wonderful guy. And she was actually given um, her um, treatment by Arthur uh, Levy, who was a terrific oncologist, a local oncologist. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we waited. We sat and, and waited um, to see what would happen over the next two years, which was going to be a marker we were looking for, because if patients have recurrences, they generally happen in the next two years. All right. Well, we're going to have to take a short break for Medical Minute. Please stay tuned to hear more of uh, Ed and Mickey Cantor's story. This year, over 200,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments for lung cancer. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial at Yale aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm talking tonight with my guest, Edward Cantor, about his journey through his wife's cancer diagnosis of ovarian cancer uh, over 10 years ago. 
Um, and I, I want to make sure we have time to talk about your book and your journey, but uh, perhaps you can summarize um, what happened when you left us, when we well, left you before the after the break, before the break. Uh, you were mentioning that she had received her chemotherapy. She was being monitored. You were hoping for good news at a two-year mark. Well, everything went well. Um, at, we reached two years without any further incident, and then the next goal was five years. And um, we um, continued to have physical examinations um, by both Dr. Rutherford and Dr. Levy, and, um, and Mickey did well. She gathered her strength. She went back to school. She was at that time the oldest graduate school, uh, the oldest graduate student at Yale, mm -hmm. and proceeding toward a master's degree. And at the end of five years, she was said that generally the standard is that means you're cured. 2008, this would be or so. That would be 2008, mm -hmm. and six months later, she had a recurrence. And how did you find out about that? She felt a, a lump in her stomach, ah. and uh, we had had a previous appointment scheduled with Dr. Rutherford three days later, mm -hmm. and she went to see him, and you could tell by the look on his face that it was back. Yeah. And so he did an immediate CAT scan, said we have to operate. Um, this is really very unusual and very unfortunate, and they opened her up, and they found um, more tumors, a very large tumor pressing against her lung and another one near her liver. Mm. So um, they knew about it through the CAT scans before they went in, and two doctors operated on her at that time. Mm -hmm. And were they able to remove most of the cancer then? They removed everything that was visible, but they didn't know, and obviously they didn't remove it all. Sure. Because over the next two to three years, um, she at that point began to register on the uh, on on the CA125 scale. The blood scale. test. Uh -huh. Yeah, <clears throat> and the numbers did not come down sufficiently. <clears throat> and um, it was steadily downhill. There were some really bad incidents. We did a trial with Avastin, which was a drug that was being used. Uh, so this was a clinical trial? A, a research clinical trial? trial. She was in. She ended up with um, very high blood pressure, being rushed to the hospital, having a seizure. Oh, wow. Being in a coma for about uh, four or five days. Oh. Um, so there was there were a series of misfortunes, and um, at one point um, in 2011, at the end of 2010, we were basically told, I was told, that nothing else was going to work, and we had to decide whether to continue to look for the needle in the haystack without much optimism or to go for quality of life, which is a decision that we made. Mm. And uh, was hospice involved at that point? Or? There was an early hospice program when we weren't on actually um, in hospice because we were still in chemotherapy mm -hmm. when Mickey needed help at home. And uh, during that time, um, they came a couple of days a week. Then at the end of 2010, they, we went into a full hospice program as, as an outpatient. Mm -hmm. And then when did she pass away? She passed away on July 11th in uh, 2000, July 7th in 2011. Hmm. 
And did she have some reasonable quality of life in those last months? Or? She, she did, and her attitude was terrific because she did not want people to look on her as Mickey the patient. She wanted to be looked on as a, as a real person. What held her back is that because there was an increased tumor again at the base of her lung, her lung was compressed, so she needed to be on oxygen all the time. Mm-hmm. That meant that basically she was confined to home. But she did the best under the circumstances, and she never complained, and that's what I wrote about. What led you to write a book about this? Well, in the beginning, when she was in the hospital back in 2003, I started to keep a journal just Mm -hmm. out of my own frustration to write about what was going on. And uh, I did that during until she finished her first bout of chemotherapy. Then when she died, I looked at my notes and I said, you know, I think there's something here that other caregivers could use. I was the primary caregiver, and I had never written a book before, so I began to put everything together and and put together a manuscript and wrote about it. When I was done, I was um, a friend of Dr. Sherwin Newland who wrote an award-winning book called How We Die. Mm. And I asked him if he would look at this book, and he said he was going away for vacation for a few weeks, but he'd read it when he came back. Well, the next morning on my email was a message from Dr. Newland that said I was done packing, I was going to read the first few pages, and instead I read the whole book, I couldn't put it down, you need to publish it, it's very important. Wow. And that just was a great incentive and an impetus to me that carried me through refining the book expanding the book. Um, In the beginning, it was really too clinical. I was relying on the journal. Later on, I added several thousand words and made it much more personal. So it became a personal story. It became a story for caregivers, I think, but it also became a love story. And when did you publish it? The book was published about a little over a year ago. Mm -hmm. And how how would people get a hold of it? Is it you can get hold of it at uh, Barnes & Noble, at, um, uh, at Amazon, at Amazon, yeah. at independent bookstores. Okay. But it's important. The name of the book is Remember Me Living with Cancer. It's important to use the whole title, Remember, uh, Remember Me Living with Cancer, because um, there are, I found out later that there are several Remember Me's. So you need to go a little further than that or you need to use my name. Got it. Um, so you, you, you say that this is really a book for caregivers. What, what are some of the learning points or take-home points, or is it just a question of, uh, of knowing that there's other people out there who've been undergoing similar experiences and, and get validation from, from reading this experience of yours? What, what do you see as the message for the caregiver? Well, I recall two questions that were put to me by friends of mine, close friends. One of them was, are you afraid of Mickey dying? That that was a question that I was asked early on. And I said, I'm not afraid of her dying. I'm afraid of getting there. Hmm. And it was this torturous journey that is important to keep in mind that I wrote about. The second question was, do you have any axioms that you take out of the experience that you can repeat to other caregivers? And I thought about that. And the first one is to be there, 
to be there for your spouse or the person you're you're giving care to to physically and emotionally be present being present right. even if it's just holding hands um, the second is to be an advocate because you're quite in a system that you can't control and the patient just has to follow the doctor's instructions but you need to speak up to question the doctor to ask questions to talk to friends to tell them what's appropriate and what isn't and um, I think those are two important things that I carried forward and the other one is that a cancer death is not like dying from a heart attack. It goes on generally over a period of time. Yes. If there's a good thing about a cancer death, it's that you have time to say goodbye. And I tell my friends now frequently, don't wait too long to tell someone you love them. It's really important. Mm -hmm. A couple of things that you mentioned earlier uh, really struck me. Uh, one that um, uh, you stated, and I don't know if you meant it literally, that the doctors uh, sort of took you aside, it sounds like, to talk to you that, about the pathologic diagnosis or surgical diagnosis while your wife was still recovering. And subsequently, later on, uh, you were told that there was nothing meaningful that could be done. And um, at least looking at it from a 2016 perspective or from my personal perspective, um, it doesn't feel kosher to me. Uh, you know, we um, really believe the patient needs to be the center of the drama and the information. And it feels to me like perhaps you were put in this untenable situation of knowing something she didn't know. And uh, what was that like? Or am I misinterpreting the story? I think I encouraged the conversation. Um, early on when she had her recurrence, I talked to Dr. Schwartz at the, uh, at the cancer center, and I asked him, I was asking the questions, um, Mickey was not, and I said, when you have a recurrence, what are the chances of recovery? And he said, well, it depends on how early you catch the recurrence, and whether the treatment that you try in the early stages works, because mm -hmm. the further out you go, the more likely it is that it isn't going to work. Mm -hmm. And so I listened to him and I followed what he said. After going through the trial with Avastin and with a number of other drugs, it appeared to me that we were just going downhill and it wasn't going to change. Mm -hmm. So I sought out one of the doctors and I said, what is going on? Where are we? And he was very honest with me, and he said, I think at some point soon we have to talk about palliative care. Mm -hmm. And how did Mickey get involved with that conversation? Um, after I spoke to the doctor, within 24 hours they spoke to her about palliative care. So it wasn't put in your hands? No, 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 it wasn't. And after I knew that they had spoken with her, she and I discussed it more thoroughly, and, and all the final decisions, all the decisions about her treatment were made by her, but we talked about them together. That was part of our journey. Great. Well, that's, that's good. I'm glad to hear that, as hard as it, as hard as it must have been. Um, you know, I think you uh, raise really important attention to the important role that the caregiver plays, but also 
uh, in some ways, the, the kind of loneliness of that position uh, and the, the, the burden of responsibility that many caregivers feel or take upon themselves, for better or for worse. Um, and I wonder what kind of support you received as a caregiver. Who were your caregivers during the time? Did you have any? Were the support groups family? I did. I was. I was really very fortunate. I had a, a son who lived um, in the next town, and he he was at our house continually. Um, his his uh, fiance was there with him. His former wife came to our house continually, and our grandchildren were there, and they were my primary support. And his grandchildren, our my grandchildren, began. Um, confronting the disease when they were seven and nine, hmm. and we didn't know how they would react to it, but they were wonderful. By the time Mickey had died, they were um, 15 and 17, right. and um, they were a great source of support for me, as were friends. And you learn during the situation that some friends stand up for you and some disappear. And and um, that's what happens during life. But support was very helpful. Uh, on the other hand, they all come during the day, and at night they all go home. Mm -hmm. And what's left is the caregiver and the patient. And it's a lonely existence. But and it's an, an existence that the caregiver takes on. That's Edward Cantor. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, thanking you for listening to Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.